0: So um, it's good to have all of you here this morning. Um, uh, Last week, uh, I spoke on uh, the preeminence of Christ uh, and shared that I've really been feeling led uh, to do a series on uh, apologetics, which um, is uh, kind of a formidable topic in so many ways. Uh, formidable because of my limitations, and formidable because of the the the, the scope and the depth of the subject itself. Um, but I was struck, even as I said that last Sunday, I was struck by. Uh, it's interesting how God kind of just arranges things, you know. Like you, I think if you're a believer, there are no coincidences. That that He just lines things up and. Because he's he's guiding you and directing you uh, about the way in which you should go. So um, I was on my Facebook, and I think it was Monday or Tuesday, and a very good friend of mine, uh, Walt Mueller, who is a founder president of the Center for Parent and Youth Understanding, who lives in Elizabethtown near uh, Philadelphia, PA. And he doesn't normally do this kind of a thing. He posts a lot of stuff having to do with his ministry, but. Uh, he posted this comment, and I was struck by it uh, because it just it just uh, rings so oddly in light of the world in which we live in today. So this is the this is the quote that he that he shared. My Christian faith isn't to be the one thing among many things. It's to be the one thing over and through all other things. My Christian faith isn't to be one thing among many things. In other words, our faith doesn't exist to com- to compete to be in competition with a whole bunch of other things in our lives. It's to be the one thing over and through all other things now, He didn't use this term, and we're probably going to be hitting some terms here and there. And I I want to say that, you know, when we do, and I will will explain them to you, and if it still doesn't ring uh, with you or make sense, feel free to raise your hand because you know I don't mind that. I actually prefer that when people do that, uh, and I'll explain it. But there are two terms here that apply to this quote in the world of apologetics. And the first term is what we call, and I'm going to talk about this more, the first term is called supersessionism. So it's a $64 word. Supersessionism um, means that Christ reigns over everything. He, that, that everything is subordinate to him. All other religions, all other worldviews, all other priorities. Christ supersedes. And so what Walt said in this quote is that my faith supersedes everything else. And you, you can imagine, can't you? Like if you were to make this same kind of quote in many public forums today, that uh, people would just be appalled at the at the, air, at the implied arrogance in their mind with that kind of a quote, that it's just intolerant, it's bigoted, it's all those kinds of things. But he is correct. Biblically speaking, he is correct. The other, the other f- term that's implied in this quote, and we're going to spend, spend a lot of time on this over the course of the time that I'm going to be in this series, <clears throat> is a word that sounds similar but it's called presuppositionalism, and, uh, and I am, and I didn't used to be, but I am a presuppositionalist. Of all of the standard apologetics that you could be studying, it seems to me that this is the most important one of our day, the most relevant, the most helpful. And presuppositionalism means that... Uh, there is a God. And that God has revealed himself in scripture that we hold to be the truth. And that truth has to apply to us in terms of how we live and who we live in obedience to. So, um, So in presuppositionalism, The beginning point is there is a God. There are no hypotheticals like, well, if, no, 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 there's no ifs. There is a God. And that God has revealed himself in scripture. And we hold that, that scripture to be divine truth to which we subordinate our lives and live in obedience to. We presuppose that. So if we get into, and I'll, again, I'll explain more of this later, if we get into a discussion or a debate or whatever, we begin with there is a God, we begin with there is Scripture, and on those things we will not negotiate. Does this make sense? Our starting point is that. And anyway, you Well, of course that's where people will start. Oh, no, no, that's not where people start. That was certainly not where people started in what you would call classic apologetics, and so I'll explain a little bit more about that too. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so I'll read this to you for those people who are maybe watching online. The supersessionism of Jesus Christ as praxis, that is, as as theory, as thought put into place, put into practice, practice, in years past was considered to be the Christian ideal, but in today's world it is regarded as hateful and extremist and bigoted, uninformed, or at the very least a toxic mental health condition that is more pathological and dangerous than almost any other current and or in vogue mental health issue. I am 62 years of age. My worldview that I have today is not much different than my worldview when I was 18 years of age and a Christian. That, what I believed about God, what I believed about the scriptures, although it was less sophisticated back then, in terms of the big pieces, is virtually the same then as it is now. So, in practice, even though I didn't realize it, I believed in the supersessionism of Jesus Christ and I believed. In the presuppositionalism of Jesus Christ. And back then, in Christendom, that was considered to be a virtue. The fact that I put God first, the fact that I put the scriptures first, that was a Christian virtue. And since then... It is now regarded as being hateful and extremist and bigoted and uninformed in our culture and in much of the church. One of the reasons why we need to have this series and this discussion is because the church is doing a very good job at slouching towards Gomorrah on these kinds of things. There are too many pastors in the church who stand over the word of God. They don't stand under the word of God. I stand under the word of God. I live in subordination to the word of God. The word of God doesn't need me to authenticate or to validate it this make sense to everybody? But I am telling you, and I don't know what percentage it would be, but I'm thinking it's probably most of the church in the culture today stands over the word of God in some fashion and in some way. They, they want, they believe that, that they are necessary in order for people to understand how it was really written and what it really means. I stand within the 2,000 year tradition of how we understand the scriptures. I don't stand outside of that tradition. There's 2,000 years of teaching of theology, of life-changing and world-changing perspective. And now many of my brethren are choosing to step outside of that and begin a new tradition. And we can't do that. So here are some Texts that would seem to be supersessionist and presuppositionalist in their construct. Luke 14:26 to 20. And by the way, when my friend Walt posted this on Facebook, I responded with a number of these texts, as well as something I'm hopefully I'll be able to get to at the end of the uh, at the end of the uh, at, at the end of this message. Um, and um, and it was uh, I mean he. We had a good conversation about it. So, in Luke 14, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, we all know, at least I think most of you know, that Jesus is stating something here in a in hyperbolic fashion. He's saying something stronger than what he really means in order to get the point across. So everyone in this room at one time said to their sibling, if you touch that again, I will break your arm. I will smash your face. Parents, you've done the same thing. You've, you've offered to reposition their rear end, be on top of their shoulders, right? You've said that before, many of you. That's called hyperbole. You don't really mean it. Jesus doesn't really want us to hate our father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. and He doesn't want us to hate our life, but he wants us to love him so much. He wants us to live in, subordinate, in subordination to him so much that it looks by comparison as if we hate all those other things. That's what he's saying here. well that's supersessionist that that he supersedes all of these other things in terms of their importance and that and that that love comes first we read in Luke 6:22 and there are many passages like this blessed are you when people hate you and even when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil <laughs> so I Remember what I just said, that what the person that I am, I was at 18, and what I am now, and how some people perceive me, and they have told me this in my debates with them in various places. You are this, you are that. I just had a conversation this morning with somebody on Facebook early this morning where they posted something that was outrageously contrary to God's word, and I, in a very nice way, responded to that, and their response to me was, you're bigoted. So much my response was, well, look, you know, in today's world, bigotry is relative. It all depends on who determines what is bigotry and not, and who gets to decide what is bigotry and not bigotry, right? I mean, it's all, it's all kind of up in the air, So, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That when you live in such a way that God supersedes everything else, when you live in such a way that you presuppose without any variation the existence of God and the truth of Scripture, people are going to hate you for it. If you are kind of forced into that conversation conversation and discussion, they're, they're going to they're take issue with you. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So these are just some examples of where Christ supersedes everything else and where when we do this, we presuppose the importance of God and what He has revealed, how He has revealed Himself in Scripture, in terms of how we live our life, how we need to obey Him. So, are all of you following me now? So far, does this make sense to you? So, understand, this is the the cataclysmic collision that is taking place between people of faith and the world in which they live today. When we lived in a culture that was still predominantly controlled by the Christian world life view, you could make presuppositionalist claims or supersessionist claims and people might not have agreed with you, but they would have understood that that is a part of the value system of the culture and has been part of the value system of the culture since the inception of this country. But today, that is not what they believe. And, the, and, and increasingly, more and more people will take issue with you. In other words, <clears throat> it's not only this. Um, in our world today, it's not enough that you don't agree with a person and that you do a live and let live It's not enough. Today, you have to celebrate how they disagree with you. You have to affirm. You have to validate their worldview, their value system. It's not enough that you tolerate. It's not enough that you leave them alone. You must think like they think. So if any of us think that we can escape that or our loved ones who are people of faith or whatever, it's you're not. You're going to encounter on some level and in some way. Here's one of the premier texts. This is John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that definite article in there, I am the way, the truth, that triple definite article there, the life. That is problematic with the with with those who disagree with us in the world in which we live. But there's no getting away from that. It says what it says. And so you and I live and conduct our affairs in everyday life, believing and practicing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. No one has access to eternity, no one can get into heaven, no one can be saved from their sins except through Jesus Christ. So you can see how much of the world would respond and react to this, right? Now, this isn't something that we throw in people's face. It isn't something that we say in an arrogant fashion or whatever, but it is something that we live out in our life. And so we, and so it doesn't leave the door open even a crack, that there might be some, uh, some other possibility, some other worldview, some other... Rel- doesn't, there's no room for that. It's the the. So here is our primary apologetic text for us today. So, and many of you would be familiar with this, but again, there there are many texts out there that would you could put alongside this, where the apostle Peter says. And remember the apostle Peter, where he's at when he's writing this. Uh, Uh, He's in, he's in uh, uh, where you would be sort of modern day Turkey, writing to the churches there, getting ready, getting them ready for this persecution that's about to be unleashed on them. And this is the text. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. There is a lot going on in this text. And I'm not going to take a, whole, a lot of time to break it down for you. But if you take this clause by clause, but in your hearts, in the place that you live, Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Separate. Distinct. Uh, existing for uh, a, a holy other purpose. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. So very distinct in that way. Always being prepared to make a defense. So when you... Go to where you work, or when you encounter your neighbors, or when you uh, have um, a, a family friend, or a, a new associate, or a, a new friend, or whatever, in the back of your mind, are you always kind of reading the circumstances, listening to their heart, hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you, and in your mind asking, Okay, so it, so it. How, how can I be prepared if this person would ask about what is so different about my life? Because they see that in my heart, I am honoring this God. And it's different. It's remarkable. And now they are asking me, and what do I say? And then if they say, but what about this or what about that? is there some way that I can be prepared to be able to share about the hope that exists within me? And when I do that, will I do it with gentleness and respect? I kid you not, I've known pastors (laughs) who thought that it was evangelism By basically saying to people who were unbelievers, turn or burn. Some of you know you were a part of that church tradition. You've heard it. That's arrogant. And that doesn't help. It hurts. And so, we have to be able to engage them in a way that's loving and kind. We can't be like Jonah, who after uh, going to Nineveh and warning them that unless they repented, that their city would be destroyed by God, and then hoping that they would not uh, uh, repent and go up on a hill and wait for God to destroy them. Like, like. And then God's responding by saying, look, Jonah, why do you want to see him destroyed? Do you not understand? These people are so corrupt. They are so lost that they don't know their right hand from their left. And there are many, many, many people in our world today who do not know their right hand from their left hand. So what is apologetics? And this is what it is. Reasoned arguments or writings... In the justification of something, typically a theory or a religious doctrine, it is, in the Christian context, the defense and correction of the Christian faith. The correction for the, so not the correction of the Christian faith, but correction in the Christian faith. The defense of. And I want to say this to you. there are still many people who believe that if they could learn everything that could be learned about apologetics, that's, that's what we're missing. That then they could just take on people and rationally defeat them and demonstrate their error and get them to convert to Jesus in that kind of a way. Apologetics is not the end when it comes to evangelism or even missions work. It's a tool. It's something that we use to help people to understand. Melissa, yeah. Both Both I mean look if you watch enough if you if you are online long enough uh, and, and watch what comes across like your social feeds and or even like your your pop or your popular culture stuff or if you watch the news or any pop culture stuff on TV, then you are properly horrified by what people think they know about the Christian faith. And then, hopefully, you are even more properly horrified by what other Christians say about the Christian faith. That's way outside the 2,000-year tradition. That's way outside of Orthodox teaching in terms of biblical teaching and theology. So, in apologetics, when we can, as we can, it's simply a matter of, of, help, of, of bringing... Uh, a deeper understanding of who God is and how he has spoken. And and you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have advanced degrees. But I do want to say this. I want to say that in the past, the church has relied too much on something like apologetics to do their work for them in terms of evangelism and missions work. And oftentimes, did it arrogantly. You, you know what the greatest apologetic is, don't you? You know what the greatest apologetic is. The greatest apologetic is authentic Christ-likeness in the life of the believer. <laughs> That's the greatest apologetic. I mean, everybody here would say that if they encounter Jesus personally, or if you could get your friends or your business associates to meet Jesus personally, in the flesh, that would be a compelling thing. How many of you believe that, right? We all believe that, don't we? We think he's such a remarkable figure that if people could actually meet Jesus or experience Jesus in the same way that you have, that it would be a compelling thing to bring them to a living and vital faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus made provision for that, and it's called you and me. That the only way people can, can experience the compelling nature and person of Jesus Christ is in you and me. Now, Jesus alludes to this in John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, where in his prayer, he says twice, and I pray, Father, that they might all be one in order that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son. And I pray, Father, that that they might all be one. So, by saying that they might all be one, it implies a lot of things. Oneness and unity under Christ. Oneness and unity in Christ. So, here you have all these believers who look like Jesus, who are united under Jesus. There are 20,000 different Christian faiths in the world today. 20,000 different Christian faiths. Between 3 and 5,000 of those Christian faiths are exclusive. In other words, unless you believe like they believe. Unless as a zebra you have the same exact stripe pattern that they have as a zebra, you are not saved. So, when the world sees that there are 20,000 different Christian faiths, do you think that's a compelling thing for them to come to Christ, or do they just see a bunch of people that don't get along with each other? Yeah, Bonnie. We had... Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's driven so much by our own personal pride, our lack of understanding, our lack of humility. Look, there are all kinds of believers that I have in my life that I love as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we don't agree about everything, but we agree about the main things. And when we agree about the main things, then I then there's freedom in Christ not to believe in some of the other things that are secondary. But when churches literally split up because two factions cannot decide what color the new cushions on the pews ought to be, true story, then it's a problem. So we need a church then that is, we, we need the church to be then a church that, um, that recognizes that we begin with God and that we begin with scriptures, and that out of that, that we get right teaching that is courageous and honest and truthful, insightful on the one hand, uh, but gracious and kind Impatient, on the other hand. G.K. Chesterton said, I don't need a church to tell me where I'm wrong, where I already know I'm wrong. I need a church to tell me I am wrong where I think I am right. Well, that church doesn't hardly exist anymore. Yeah, Ada. Yes. Oh yeah. Well I think that those so let me just say this. That's a great question. I think the first battle to be won is what do they believe about God? And how are they willing to engage the scriptures? So let's begin with that. Let's win that battle first. Then let's let the Holy Spirit work on these other issues. I've known gay people who believe that they love Jesus Christ with all their hearts. I've known people who believe in uh, abortion who would say the same thing. I've also known some of those same people who that's where they were then, but over time they evolved and migrated into a more orthodox position. So there was one over here, and then then over here. Yep, Bonnie. I just took this quote down a couple of days ago. G.K. Chesterton also said, when people stop believing in God, they believe in anything. Well, uh, and that's a presuppositionalist position that you just said that's exactly what that that's because they would say that you can only know truth through God's truth that all truth belongs to God and the only way that you can know truth is and they say well that's kind of circular reasoning and and so we can explain that later when we get into that uh, uh, that uh, that teaching about it all together but but that's exactly right uh yeah Yeah, Yeah. no, that's exactly right. And so, so heresy is something that you try to correct. In fact, let me just say this, the creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed that we read on a regular basis, those are apologetics. They were written to, correct pe- to, to, to bring right teaching and to correct wrong thinking. So those are apologetic statements. I mean, aside from Scripture, they're probably among the most holy statements that we, that we read and that we recite. But they were designed. So let me just say this. And I'll, I have this later on in the, in the, in the sermon. But almost uh, all of the Gospels, all of the epistles in the New Testament are apologetic in nature. They just are. They were written to explain to people who God is and the primacy of God and to correct any wrong thinking or wrong behavior that was taking place to whom those people were writing to. It's all apologetics. So unless you think that you know, there, are, you know, there are some words that when you say them, They sound like they mean, like the word insipid. You know what insipid means? It means tastelessness. Like, that's just tasteless. It's insipid. Sounds like it means. There's another word called erudite. Erudite sounds like it means. Erudite means formal learning of deeper knowledge. Okay? So, I am not trying to be erudite with all of this but rather i'm trying to to expand our knowledge and so um hopefully i'll be able to uh to get in fact i have some memes here that i'm not going to get to right now i'm just going to skip over them but i'm going to come back to them maybe next week because i want to spend the remainder of say the time that we have to explain why all this is important and i might have to come back at it again in two weeks Why are apologetics important? Why are apologetics important? So this is why we're going to study this. It's for the defense of Christianity. Apologetics produce foundational knowledge of Christian faith. That when we talk about the different kinds of apologetic arguments, it necessarily takes you to the very foundations of the Christian faith. And not that you will not have had some of that conversation in the past, but it amplifies it. It broadens it out. It helps you to see it in a different way. So in one sense, as I do this series, it's going to be like a a course in foundations of Christian thinking and faith. It's to assist in evangelism of non-believers. And I've had many conversations with people over the years where they would ask a question like, well, you know, I mean, how do you know that like God created all this? So in the back of my mind, you know, I would say, well, I would never use a word, but there's this thing called the teleological argument for the existence of God, which basically says... How could, how could all of this that we see in this world today, be an accident? It just seems like it was designed. Like if you ran across a watch in the middle of the field, right? A gold watch, a Rolex. Aside from wanting to grab it and <laughs> like trade it in for some money, you'd be thinking. You would not think. Aha. A gold Rolex watch that evolved by itself out of nowhere. It just, it just over time, that's what happened. You'd say, no, there was a, was somebody that designed that, that created that. Well, the universe is far more complex than a gold Rolex watch. Are you telling me that it just happened by accident? Do you see how that discussion could be helpful to some people? So it can assist. The fourth one is the credibility of reasonableness of one's belief. So there are probably most people who are not believers believe that most Christians have never really thought about their faith. That they they don't really have any. They've not really explored or examined why they believe the way they believe. And I see this. I belong to a couple philosopher uh, groups on Facebook. And uh, it's, just, it's just it's crazy some of the things that people say there, you know. And then they want to accuse me for not thinking critically or reasonably, you know. I I just like. Uh, I do a couple face palms and then I try to respond to them. But uh, I think it really helps people when you're trying to evangelize them, share the gospel. And they have legitimate questions. And you can say, you know, that's that's really a good question. Well, this is kind of how I see it. And then you explain from the biblical text and then you amplify out from that some of these things that we're going to be talking about. And then they walk away and think, well, you know, they were really more informed and deeper in their thinking than what I thought. I mean, I just thought that it was just an irrational exercise of faith, of just believing in nothing. Right? Then they say something really stupid like, prove to me that God does not exist. <laughs> you, you, you can't prove a non-proof. Right? You can't, you can't prove something that is a negative. You can prove something that is a positive, but you can't prove a negative. So the next thing you wanna say is you should take a class in logic so that you know how to ask the question, but not really, you shouldn't do that. But, so my point is, is, that, is that you have those kinds of conversations and you can actually help them believe that your faith is more than just some kind of emotional exercise that's absurd so the credibility of reasonableness of one's belief the next one confrontation and correction of apostasy which is what was said back here by the way i just want to say this to you too is there anybody here that has absolute perfect knowledge of what the biblical text says and who God is and what he requires of us. Is there anybody here? Feel free. Raise your hand if you like. Is there anybody here that has absolute perfect knowledge of that? Okay. Have there ever been times in your life when you said something about God or about the Bible, you weren't entirely sure, but you thought that maybe you were pretty close to what it was being said? Have anybody here done that? Then you're a heretic. All right, Because all Christians are heretics in varying degrees. But there is a line that you cross over. And it's called apostasy. And that's why when we teach, we teach out of humility. There are some things that you can know absolutely for certain. And you can say, look, I, I just believe that. And, that's, you know. and those are the essential things. But on some of the other things... A little humility can go a long ways in helping people to get where you are and what you believe. Does this make sense to everybody? Finally, apologetics illustrates the, su- the supersessionism of Christianity over other worldviews. And so uh, apologetics helps to demonstrate why Christ supersedes, why God supersedes all other worldviews. That is both, like, ideological as well as religious worldviews. And apologetics is designed, is supposed to help do that, depending on the kind of apologetic. What apologetics is not... It is not a substitute for authentic Christian evangelism. You just don't, you just don't take the, the different kinds of apologetics and lay them on somebody and wait for them to convert. No. Nope. Live Christ-like lives in their presence. Love them as Jesus would love them. Answer their questions. Guide them. All of those kinds of things. That's what's most important. It is not a silver bullet for the proof of God's existence. It's not that. There are, depending on who you talk to, there are three primary schools of apologetics, and I'm going to get to that next two weeks, I guess. But if you were to take one of these toothpicks, if I can get one out, on its own, I can break that toothpick. But if I take more and more toothpicks out and I put them in a bundle and I bundle them up, Each time I put a toothpick in that bundle, it gets more and more difficult to break that bundle, right? That's what apologetics is. It's understanding all the different kinds of arguments that there are and the ways that you argue them. And each one of those arguments is like one of these toothpicks and you bundle them. So that no one apologetic is the silver bullet even all of them are not a silver bullet, but they're probably a, a, a viable rubber bullet. Okay. Apologetics is not a replacement for faith. A logical understanding of who God is is not the same as having a faith relationship with Jesus. As I have shared many times, most Christian theologians... Are not Christians. They are not believers. Most theologians who study in the Christian faith are not believers. So just because they have knowledge about God doesn't mean that they have faith or believe in God. They just have a lot of knowledge. Apologetics is not a substitute for the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit might use apologetics, but it's not a substitute for the Holy Spirit. And apologetics is, can be an answer, cannot always be an answer for the so what question. Like if I say there was a designer who designed this world that's more complex than a gold watch, then that person was, so what? So, so what? It's not an answer to the so what question always. And being able to answer that so what question is really important. So that's all I'm going to do today. And I got about halfway through. And it could be that uh, that I could be going through this a good bit of the summer. I hope that's okay. But it's not just going to be this intellectual thing, but it really is going to be getting into biblical text uh, as we explore this, so that we foundationalize our thinking in that regard as well. Does this make sense? Okay. So, feel perfectly free to give me feedback uh, if you're confused or you think this is too much or whatever, so that I can I can respond to that and and, and help in any way that I can. So um, I, I would appreciate that. But that's where we are today. And that's, uh, and we'll move on from here, in in two weeks. Okay, all right. So, oh, man, I got to do this. See Nikki, where's Nikki at? Oh, does she step out? Okay. Nikki told me that sometimes I'm the one that needs the shepherd, shepherd's crook up here. So. Uh, so maybe, maybe I do today, I don't know. But um, I just want to read this because I don't know if I can get back to it later on. And, 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 and I, I just want to say that in my critique of the churches that are not presuppositional in their faith, those pastors and those churches, when God is not first, when the scriptures are not true then grace is cheap when god is not primary and the scriptures and you stand over the scriptures instead of standing under the scriptures then inevitably grace becomes cheap And one of the great theologians of the 20th century said this about cheap grace, and you and I can never be guilty of cheap grace. We can never be guilty of cheap grace. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to say. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares, A cheap jack was a person who would sell cheap, inexpensive things off the sidewalk that were kind of faulty, not reliable. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jack wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut-rate prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost, he says rhetorically. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession and absolution without personal confession. I absolve you of your sins, but you don't have to confess what your sins are. That's cheap grace. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man's life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son ye were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. What has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And I think there's a double entendre there. Costly grace is the incarnation of God that is Christ in the flesh. And costly grace is the incarnation of Christ in our flesh that's going to cost us.